Good morning. I love being with you here in Owasso. Uh, my family is not able to join this morning. My wife is 38 weeks pregnant, and we have three other little bien. Gracias. I'll go ahead and speak in English. Um, thank you. Uh, thank you, Trinity Owasso, for uh, supporting the work of RUF at the University of Tulsa. Uh, when you give to this church regular tithes and offerings, vis-a-vis uh, -vis, uh, a mission partnership you are giving to, to our work at TU. And so thank you, you're partnering with us. Additionally, many of you give to us individually. Above what you give here, and I'm certain to other uh, missionaries and groups, uh, thank you, you know who you are. Um, and for those of you who would want more information about RUF uh, and what we're doing at TU, just find me after. Um, I'll stick around for a little bit. I won't panhandle, but if you want to hear about that, I'd love to talk to you about that. Last Sunday, uh, one week ago, I was not at church. I was not in any church. Shame on me, because I was uh, taking our eight-year-old daughter to summer camp at Pine Cove Christian camp in Tyler, Texas. Uh, it's a camp some of you are familiar with. Blake and Lauren uh, send their kids there. Uh, Jason and Angie Kreider go there to family camp. It's a great camp. Um, Nora Klein was going for her first week as, a, as an overnight summer camper, and she had all the camp emotions, it, which was kind of sweet and funny to, to watch. She was unbelievably excited. I mean, for weeks and weeks leading up, it's all she talked about. She was also... I, I properly nervous. Um, she had never done this before. She had never been away, really, from us other than staying with family. And uh, we trusted the camp, and we love what they're doing there. And so we were glad to, to send her off for the week. And so I drove down to Tyler uh, last Sunday. And as I pulled up, the camper or the, the counselors, they run out and they greet you, and they've got more energy than I've got the year and the whole year. And they're out there screaming and yelling, and your kid's getting excited. But then comes the swim test. Oh, the swim test. Our eight-year-old Norcline is a great swimmer. Uh, we have spent seemingly thousands of dollars on swim lessons. I didn't plan on that when I became a parent. I didn't know swim lessons were that expensive, but they are. Uh, so she uh, got into the pool, kind of the pool area. She waited in line, and it was her time to swim and to prove to the counselors that she could do it. And so all that stood between her and a great week of camp were those 60 feet from the deep end to the shallow end, and then she was home free, and I would be driving back to Tulsa. She gets up to the edge of the deep end with, six, uh, with five other campers, six of them total, and they kind of spread out along that deep end. The lifeguard is standing on the diving board, and she tells them it's time to go. And the first few get in the water and begin their swim down, and, and the next few do it. And Nora Klein and one other kid are just sitting there on the side. Now, I, I thought maybe the lifeguard was releasing them in waves so that there wouldn't be, you know, running into each other and confusion in the pool. But then they just stayed there. And they stayed there. And what felt like this pregnant pause of a minute or more, they just stayed there. And finally, when I realized that this was not going as planned, I went from being a, a cheerleader to like the, the coach dad thing. We haven't done many recreational sports yet, but I felt it welling up in me. I'm like, Nora Klein, you can do it. Because she could, she could do it. Get in, swim. 
And eventually she slid into the pool and took off and did it. And swam the whole way and it was great. And she climbed out of the pool, got her shoes and her towel, and kind of walked over to me. And by this point I'm sweating, you know, I'm pacing. And I put my arm around her and I tell her I'm proud of her. And I said, hey, babe, what was going on down there? Like, what happened? She said, Dad, it was 13 feet deep. (laughs) It said right there on the side next to where I was sitting, it said 13. I've never been in 13-foot water before. I was scared. She did great. But the deep water was scary. This summer, as you guys embark on another summer in the Psalms, we're going to jump right into the deep end for a minute. Psalm 8 is this glorious, beautiful psalm. It's a song that King David composed. Really, it's a reflection on the early chapters of Genesis as God talks about His creation and as it's laid out, mankind's place in the creation David is reflecting on that, and he's glorifying God, but he's also saying a lot about what it means to be human, the human experience. So I guess you could say here on June 4th in Trinity Owasso, uh, we are going to unlock the meaning of life. You're welcome. It's just a summer thing to do. It's like playing the sprinklers and eat watermelon and unlock the meaning of life all in one day. So what does David say for us about the meaning of life? What is it about, uh, about our experience of being human that he wants us to understand? Before we, re- we read it, I want us to consider why it is that we don't often ask these deeper questions. Why it is that we don't often think about the metaphysical stuff of life, why things are the way they are, what we're created for, now, there's a lot of ways to answer that. I think simply one of uh, the reasons is because like, we have enough stuff to think about. We live in an information age. We, we open our phones, and there's all the headlines for the day uh, around the world and all the stuff Blake's prayed for, and then there's the not-so-bad things. There's sports, and there's technology, and there's, there's amazing things, and then there's politics and whatever that is. And, and then there's like all this different stuff we could be thinking about. That's one of the reasons we don't think about the deep things. Another reason is because these questions often don't come with easily uh, nice packaged answers. Some of the places that they lead us are maybe more confusing than where we started, and we don't get to like tie it up with a nice little bow and walk away and say, wow, that was uh, enjoyable and productive. There's a thousand reasons why we don't do this. But I would suggest that when, when we don't do this, we actually are missing out on, on a big part of what the human experience is, what it means to be human, why God made us the way He made us, our purpose, our meaning. And so thankfully, Psalm 8 leads us in that path this morning. David gives us some thoughts about what it means to be human. And what he suggests, what he holds out is the essence of humanity, the the pinnacle and the depth of the human experience is that we glorify God and enjoy Him. That we are most fully human 
when we find ourselves glorifying God. And I realize there's, there's nothing that sounds more churchy than that. But I promise you, this is very applicable. And this is something you can do. This is something you probably do whether or not you realize it. So tell you what, if you're able, let's stand, and I want to read this passage for us, and then I'll let you sit, and we'll, we'll reflect on it for just a few moments together. This is God's Word from Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at the heavens and the works of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands and you have put all things under his feet all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the fields, the birds of the heaven, the fish of the sea, whatever paths, passes along the paths of the seas. O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth. You may be seated. Because King David was a classically trained Presbyterian minister, he gives us three categories uh, to think about our humanity in God's glory in this passage. And the first way that he says that we glorify God and are restored in our humanity is that we praise God with our mouths. We praise God with our mouths. And, and that's just simply what David's doing here. The refrain opens up in verse 1 and echoes in verse 8, or verse 9, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth. He's saying right there, O Lord, and he's using the name of God, Yahweh. It's the personal name. It's as if I were to address Blake as Blake and not just friend. O Yahweh. And then he says, our Lord, our Master, our good Master and King. How great is your name in all the earth? He's using his mouth to praise God. We know how it, how it is to praise things. We do it all the time. We do it instinctively even. Think about it. Hey, have you eaten at Andalini's? Have you tried their garlic knots? They're amazing. Their hand-sliced sausage they put on their pizzas. Oh, it's so good. They even let the kids play with dough in line. That's brilliant. Have you met Miss Grove at Hudson Elementary? She is such an amazing teacher. The way, the way that she instructs the kids and gives them personal attention amidst Oklahoma's budget cuts and him having 45 kids in there, she is amazing. Have you ever fished at Little Willie Cove over at Skytook Lake? The bass are hitting over there like crazy. We praise the things that we're excited about. It's instinctive. It's something that we know how to do. David is praising God. Why and how? Because he knows God. He has found God to be praiseworthy. And so he can't contain the thoughts and the overflow of his heart and the thoughts of his mind. Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. When we find something that captivates us, we praise it. 
But there's a unique difference between Yahweh, the Lord, and Andalini's. Andalini's is great, but it's local. Mrs. Grove is wonderful, but she's in Owasso. The Little Willie Cove over there is hot right now, but it's only in one place. Yahweh, the Lord, His glory is not local, it's global. Look at what David says. How Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And he goes on to say in the next verse, you have set your glory above the heavens. And what he is not saying is that God's glory is somewhere out there hidden, that we can't find it, that it, you know, it's the heavens, it's, it's some spiritual place that we don't know anything about and we can't really discover, we can maybe sit around and think about it. No, what he's saying is that God's glory is like a canopy over the whole world, that it's everywhere. And that if you would only open your eyes and understand who He is and who you are, then you would see it, that you would realize it, you would find it, and you would praise Him for it. God's glory is global because He is a global God. And so, God is glorified, and we are made more human when we recognize His glory. When we recognize all or anything that is good and right and true and beautiful in this world, God is saying through those things, I am there. That's where I am. In anything that's good, right, true, and beautiful. And so when you see something good, when you see the smallest of things, which may not be so small for some of you, when you see a sibling loving their brother or sister, that is a good thing. Praise God for that in that moment, because it could be very different. When you see something good on, on a bigger scale, when you see an emergency rescuer taking a harrowing adventure to rescue someone out of a stream or a creek or a fire, give glory to God because there is structure and institutional places uh, for, those, for those rescues to take forth, take place, that we can call a number and people show up. Glory to God for the good work that is done there. When you see something right or righteous in the world, when you see justice prevail in our society, give God the glory for it that He has written these desires for justice and equality on our hearts and even on the hearts of people who don't give God glory regularly. There's a desire for good and right things to go forward. Praise Him for it and pray and cry out when we don't see it happening, when we see the opposite of righteousness and justice. God, help us. Help our society. Help me. Help our church. Help the institution. Help us. When we see true things, we can give God glory. When you see the coherence of the universe, when you see the intelligibility of this world, when you see technological advancement, when you see scientific enterprise, when you see the amazing uh, potential of this world unlocked in new technologies and new techniques, give God the glory for it. He is in all of that. And when you see beauty, when, when you see the face of another, whether it's uh, your wife or your husband, 
husbands aren't that good looking, when it's your wife or, or your children, or the mountains, or a fish, or a meal, or a well-organized and designed home, God, praise you that you are a God of beauty and order and creativity. These things don't exist apart from you. They exist from you and through you. And friends, when we do that, when we don't just acknowledge our praise on a horizontal level, when we take it vertically, when we lift our eyes heavenward, we are restored in our humanity. This is what it means to be human, that our mouths praise and glorify God. Notice what David says then in the second verse. He he says that out of the mouths of babies and nursing infants, you have established strength because of your enemies to still them in the avenger. What he's saying is that God's glory is so real and it is, he is so fixed in the world that even at the prattling of a baby, even at the, the squeals of, a, of the smallest of beings, that noise, that exultation is a stronger thing than the strongest advances of anyone who would seek to oppress and silence God. That is what that word means. Some translations say the str- it's a stronghold, or some of them say strength. It means that those sounds of nursing babies and infants, anytime they reference God in their being, in their personhood, that is a stronger thing than all that the enemy can bring to bear. It's no surprise then that Jesus takes up this passage on his lips when he is entering Jerusalem about to be crucified by the people who hate him. And there he is in the temple, and he's just done all this healing and these miraculous works. And his enemies, sorry, and the children are crying out, Hosanna to the Son of David. They are acknowledging Jesus' Messiahship and his Lordship and his kingship rightly. And Jesus' enemies come to Jesus and they they say, look, aren't you going to rebuke them for doing that? Do you hear them? They're calling you God. And Jesus turns to his enemies and says, have you never read that out of the mouths of infants and babies, you have ordained praise? Jesus acknowledges that he is God and he is worthy of all praise. And you would do well to praise Him. It's what you're created for. It it restores humanity where it's been lost. So in praising God with our mouths, we affirm His glory and we reorient ourselves to how God has made us to live and be. But David gives us more. As the psalm continues, uh, the echoes of Genesis 1 and 2 intensify and pick up. And in verses 3 through 5, David reflects on God's creation, and he begins to draw out this tension that we live in as humans. And it goes like this. He, he talks on one hand and says that we are, we are organic beings. We are made of the stuff of the earth. Not that we belong at Whole Foods, not that kind of organic. He's saying that we are made of the same stuff as ants and plants and snails and whales. Your body has the same stuff in it that petroleum has in it. That's humbling. 
It's supposed to be. On one hand, we are dust. We are created from the stuff of this earth. Yet, we are more than dust. Verse 5, you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. That word can also be translated than God or the gods. And you have crowned him, you've crowned man with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. So yes, we, we are dust, and one day we will return to dust in our bodies. But on the other hand, God has crowned us with glory and honor. He has given us a place and a title and a purpose which nothing else in this world has. And so it's at the same time humbling, but at the other time it's, it's exalting that God has given us a calling. And this is what He did with Adam and Eve in the garden. He looked at them and said, I give you dominion over everything that I've created. And I'm sure Blake's talked about this ad nauseum because pastors love this stuff. But he's saying that that means that, that you have a real purpose and place in this world to use your hands, to use your life, your minds, and your imaginations to create, to create culture, to go out and work the world and the earth, to create websites that, that can't be hacked, to be a chemist and to, to discover all the different ways the polymers interact with that stuff to go out in banking and lend money to people who don't have it on their own, but do it fairly, to go teach, to farm, to brew beer, to do whatever it is that you do with the works of your hands that creates culture and that makes this world a habitable and beautiful place to live, God has said, that is what you're to do. You are to fill the world with His goodness and with His creativity as you exist in His image. And when you do that, you praise Him with the works of your hands. We don't segment the stuff of our life from the praise words of our mouth. The stuff of your life is the praise of your mouth. That means, very simply, that in whatever place God has you, in whatever your current state of vocation or education is, you can praise God. When you work faithfully and honestly, you are praising God. When you study and are building up your skill set, you are praising God. That's what it means to be human. So whether in engineering or parenting, following or leading, cooking, teaching, landscaping, it doesn't matter. It all matters. Because God has created us to worship Him with the works of our hands. And conversely, this is why when we go through seasons of unemployment or underemployment, we get sad we get depressed. Sinfully, when we are lazy and we don't do the things that God has called us to do or put before us to do, 
This is why our life begins to feel fragmented, and it feels like we're coming unraveled. Um, as a college minister, I don't, at TU, I don't get to talk to a lot of lazy students because uh, TU has a way of weeding those people out pretty quick. But occasionally, I'll talk to a guy or a girl who they're not going to class. They're staying in their room, mostly guys at this point, playing video games for hours and hours and hours. They're, they're hanging out with their friends. They're staying out too late and missing those morning classes. It's, it's laziness. And it is almost 100%, if not 100% of the time. Laziness is accompanied by depression and spiritual apathy. Because we can't just segment off this part of our life and say, if, I, if I'm lazy over here, I can be fine over here. Friends, if you've ever thought for a moment or if you've ever breathed for half a day in this world, you know that we are holistic people. Our lives are intertwined. We're not segmented. God has made us to function holistically. And so when we're lazy, of course it's going to wear on you spiritually and you're going to feel like you're worthless. When you're unemployed, which is not a sinful thing, when you're unemployed and you want to be employed, of course it's frustrating. Of course your life's going to be filled with a little bit of angst and anger because you were made to go do something. But in Owasso, a solidly middle-class, middle-upper-class place, my guess is that most of us don't struggle on that end of the spectrum with laziness. There is also a way that we fight our humanity by overworking. That when we go from, from taking the normal uh, calling in our lives, our vocations, whether parenting or working out uh, somewhere, when we take that and when we make it the everything, so when we overwork, when we keep adding more hours, even if they pay us for it, when we aren't uh, just okay with being in this job, we're climbing and scratching and clawing to get to the top. When work is never enough and you just keep going and keep going, you are coming unraveled because rather than accepting your humanity and the, the fact that you need to rest and the fact that relationships matter and if you're always working, you don't have time for them, when you claw for more and more and more, you aren't accepting your humanity, you're trying to play God. You're trying to be like Him in power and in dominion over everybody and everything. Friends, it is a human thing to work, yes, but it is an inhumane, an unhuman act to overwork. And so rightly understood, God has given us a place and a purpose and said you are to work with your hands, and that praises me, that brings me glory, just as much as the words of your mouth. But know that, that you're called to do it rightly within uh, certain boundaries and contexts. But there's even more in this passage. We are made human. We find our life's meaning when we praise God with our hearts. When we praise Him with our hearts. Look back in verses 3 and 4, David is contemplating God's incomparable glory, which extends throughout the world and, and His beauty and the structure of the created order and, and man's elevated place in it. And yet David realizes that though he has been given this great place and crowned with honor and glory in God's world, David knows as much as you and I do 
that he did not live up to that calling. That he failed on so many levels as you and I do. And the wonder of all wonders for David is, God, I know you've called me, you've said that I'm wonderful, and you've put me over everything in your creation, but I have not glorified you. I have not always worked with my hands. I've taken life instead of giving life. God, what is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. David, he cannot imagine that God would would tolerate him in his rebellion, much less love him. David's heart is, is reflecting praise to God because he is understanding the tension that, that yes, he is a glorious being made in God's world, but, but he, doesn't, he doesn't live up to that glory. And so, how is it then that God tolerates us? No, how is it that God loves us? when we are are often kicking against Him and and rebelling against His order and rebelling against what He calls us to be and do, how can God love us? The answer is, is in that phrase, the Son of Man. Because whereas David is using this this phrase here to talk about kind of the everyman, we all, God, how is it that you're mindful of any of us? Later in Israel's history, this word would take on a different meaning. In Daniel chapter 7, uh, later on, Israel was in exile because they had rebelled against God wholesale. They had been moving against Him as their Lord for for centuries now. And God told them, hey, if you keep doing this, I'm going to send you off into exile. And they kept doing it, and so He sent them off into exile in Babylon. They are reaping what they sowed. And in in Babylon, in exile, God visits the prophet Daniel and gives him this vision from Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Listen to this. I, Daniel, I, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, and he was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So the prophet Daniel gets a vision of another one like a son of man. And interestingly, he says some of the same things about that Son of Man that that David says in Psalm 8, that that Son of Man is given dominion and glory. And so he's like us. He would be like us, but unlike us. That Daniel 7 Son of Man has a kingdom. And it says that all people and nations would come and they would bow down to him and he would serve them and His kingdom would be forever. So that Son of Man would would be like us. He would be human, and yet wholly unlike us. He would be a king, a forever king, a God. And so Daniel ends his prophecy, and the question becomes, so, so what is this 
thing? What is this person? Who is he? Is he a human or is he a man? Is he God? Is he man or is he God? Which one is he? The Lord Jesus helps us. In the very first book of the New Testament, Matthew's Gospel, Jesus picks up this phrase, the Son of Man, this title, and 29 times in 28 books, He refers to Himself as the Son of Man. Listen to a few of these. This is so good. Matthew 9, 6, Jesus says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, He said to the paralytic, rise, take up your bed and go home. Jesus is saying, I am God. I can forgive sins. He says in Matthew 16, 27, for the Son of Man is going to come with His angels in the glory of His Father, and then He will repay each person according to what He has done. Again, unequivocally, Jesus is saying, I am God. I'm forgiving sins. I'm coming with my angels. I am God. Matthew 8, 20, and Jesus said to them, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay His head. Jesus is a homeless man. Matthew 12, 40, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Gods don't die, do they? Jesus is a man. So is he a God or a man? Is Daniel talking about a God or a man? In Jesus, we see the height and the depth of God's glory. And that as God, He takes on humanity. We see the height of God's glory that in the person of Jesus, He doesn't hold on to His glory. He gives it up. In Jesus, He doesn't hold on to His exalted state of God. He comes and exalts the lowly and the outcast and those who have been written off by by society. He raises them up and affirms their dignity and gives them a place in society. Jesus, the one who, who is all and who is above everything and who deserves service, He comes to serve. Jesus, the holy God, the very creator of life, becomes sin and death. He returns to dust. The creator of the dust goes to dust so that he can rise out of the dust and say, I'm Lord of the dust. And if I'm Lord of the dust, if I'm Lord of both the heavens and the earth, that means that I alone deserve your praise. I alone deserve your worship. If the pinnacle of glory is Jesus giving up His glory, then friends, the pinnacle of your humanity as those who are in Christ and who are being recreated and restored to His image is when you set aside your glory for the good of others. That glorifies God. When as a boss, when you take up for your underling who has done something wrong because you have the place and position to do that, and you can absorb that blow, but they can't, you are showing something of God's glory. 
When, when mothers, when you get up in the middle of the night for the 10,000th time to change another diaper or another set of sheets or whatever, you are giving up your glorious sleep. Let's be clear about it. You're giving up your glorious sleep so that your child can be healthy. Fathers, when you come home from work early or at a normal hour, which feels like early, and you, you maybe shun the promotion or shun the chance to be shown to be more great because you want to show your family you love them, you are doing something of the work of God. Teachers, when you teach and when you put up with the crankiness and the questions and the nagging and the fights, you are setting aside your comfy habitation of some other job and you are giving yourselves for the good of others. Friends, there is no end to the way that you glorify God in your lives. Jesus was most fully man so that in Him, by the work of His Spirit, you can become more fully human. That is what He came to do. He didn't just come to save us from our sins. Yes, He did. But He came to restore life in us and life to the full. And we worship Him for it. Let's pray together. Oh God, our Lord, our Lord, how majestic and how unparalleled and how matchless is Your name in all of the earth. We worship You. We praise You. Fill us with Your Spirit. Use this bread and this wine to, to overflow our hearts with gratitude and praise for You for this week and forever. We ask in Your Son Jesus' name. Amen.